So sometimes when you look at the claims of, of Christianity, and, and then you look at those that study science, there are some people who simply conclude there's no way that any educated, rational thinking person could, could ever actually look at all the scientific evidence that exists out there and believe all this Christianity stuff. For instance, in The God Delusion, scientist, outspoken atheist, author Richard Dawkins, he argues that you cannot be intelligent scientific thinker and still hold to religious beliefs. It is one or the other. And to support this thesis, he points out in a study that was conducted in 1998 that showed that only about 7% of American scientists in the National Academy of Sciences believe in a personal God. What I've seen even in my own personal experiences, I spent the first 11 years of vocational ministry working specifically with teens and young adults. And I've seen this over and over and over again, where people believe things that they were taught about God, whether or not it was taught by their parents Maybe they learned about it from a Sunday school teacher, a mentor, a coach, a, a teach, school teacher. And then they attend a class in college, and the professor says something that contradicts their thoughts or what they had heard about God, what they had heard about Christianity, what they heard about faith. They watch something on TV or they watch something on YouTube, and or they have a friend or they have a family member that says you, you, you can't believe this. You, you can't believe in this stuff. And what it causes inside, it causes a type of crisis of the faith. How do I make sense of this? How do I navigate through this? If, if one part of their belief system is shaken, the limited amount of faith that they have begins to crumble. And that may have happened to you. It may have happened to somebody that you know. And that's why the big question that we're going to wrestle through and walk through today is, can I believe in God and science? Or is Dawkins right? Has science essentially disproved Christian beliefs? Must we choose in our thinking between science and God? That, that would cause us, in, in other words, to, to beg the question, why does science seem to be in conflict with the Bible? People tend to land in this camp, I think, because they simply see the relationship that exists between science and the Bible as being competitive more than it is cooperative. See, some see the relationship as either or. Instead of something that maybe God has created both that can actually work together to help each and every one of us grow further in our faith, grow in our understanding of who God is. Let me try to explain this here for a moment. An old historical church father named Augustine. We call him St. Augustine of Hippo. He lived around 400 A.D., he believed that science and the Bible were actually complementary instead of being competitive in nature. And he would have said something like this to, to summarize his teachings. He, he believed that the conflict that exists between science and faith comes from either a misunderstanding of science or a misinterpretation 
of the Bible. If there's a problem, if there's a conflict, if there seems to be some layer of competition that exists, he would have taught either you really don't know the truth and follow scientific study, or there's a misinterpretation of God's word. And this, here's what we need to understand. Believe it or not, this was the dominant view throughout history for about 1,400 years until we came to this moment in our history known as the Age of Enlightenment. Or, you can kind of think about it, it was a scientific boom in the 1700s, 1800s. At that point, there was scientific discovery after discovery after discovery, and people started to think that science explains everything. And so, as a result, there were, in that day and age, Christians began to become nervous thinking that science is an attack upon their personal faith. The problem anytime that there seems to be what we would classify a layer of competition in this area or even any other area of life or our faith, you have winners and you have what? Losers, right? If science wins in this competition, then it seems like the Bible loses. If the Bible wins, then it seems like science loses. I'd ask you this. What if the relationship between science and the Bible wasn't actually meant to be competitive? But what if instead, by a good God who created everything, it actually can be cooperative and complementary? See, I think as Christians... We have to learn to accept a layer of both and. We have to learn to manage the tensions that exist in the in-between. Actually, in the Bible, our theology, there are all kinds of both ands. There's all kinds of learning to manage the in-between. For instance, Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, both being the beginning and the end. Jesus himself is both 100% God and at the same time, 100% man. How does that work? I don't know. Like, that's one of those tensions that we have to learn how to walk through, one of those tensions we learn to manage. The, the Hebrews, the author of the Hebrews, talks about that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. See, there's these both ands, these tensions that seem to exist but in all reality seem to be true when it comes to science and our biblical faith why can't we learn from both why can't we learn and allow both to actually be something that draws us closer to god that pushes our faith deeper in our understanding of who he is the reality is both science and the bible are two different tools that i believe exist to help us understand god help us understand truth so i want to dive into this conversation today and I, I, to be honest, we're just skirting the issue. There's only so much that we can explore in the 30, 35 minutes or so that we have together this morning. So, so know that, that we're doing this at warp speed. But there's three kind of main things I want to challenge us in to this conversation that we have to take a look at in order to better understanding how can these actually exist? How can they be complementary? How could they actually be cooperative when it comes to how we see God, how we understand God, how we engage God 
in our lives. So in the last few minutes, I want us to start first the thing that we need to take a look at. If you're taking notes, write this down. We always need to start at the very beginning. I know it sounds like a Sound of Music song, but it's true. We, we do need to start at the very beginning. And so I want us to take a look at Genesis chapter 1. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go through a couple different passages. They are going to come up on the screen to make it a little easier to follow along today. But let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Go ahead and follow along here. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The interesting thing, let me stop right there. In the beginning, when God creates... The words that are actually used in the original language was that God created out of nothing. There was nothing that existed prior that God literally spoke and out of nothing God created. Why is this so powerful? Because more than 3,000 years ago, Scripture declared what science is confirming in the recent years. What did science confirm? in the most recent years that Scripture declared over 3,000 years ago. The simple truth, that the universe had a beginning. The universe had a beginning. Why is this so important? Because prior to what we can kind of classify all kinds of scientific understandings, this Big Bang theory, most atheistic scientists claim that the universe was eternal. Why does this idea, why does this truth matter? Because if the universe had a beginning, that demands of it that it had, it, it demanded a beginner. A cause, in other words, outside of itself had to cause the world to exist. As Christians, we believe that God said, let there be. And he caused the creation of the world. Look at the beginning, because this is a powerful example of how science supports what Scripture said thousands of years ago. That in the beginning, God spoke, he created the heavens, he created the earth. And you look at the beginning throughout Scripture, we see how God created with an incredible brilliance. And then he displayed it. In, in allowing us to see, to participate, to enjoy, to find great enjoyment in his creation. And in that, we find evidence for belief in God. Romans chapter 1, Paul captures it this way in verse 20. He says, For his invisible attributes, talking about who God is, says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. In other words, he says, when you even just take a moment, you slow down in life, and you look at all of the way the world, even in its fallen state, there's no way that you can look at the world and go, there is no God. He's put it on display in its, all of its brilliance. He says, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that so they are without excuse. In other words, he's saying we do not have an excuse to deny the existence of God when you just look at the systematic brilliance by which our world operates. A millennium before, there was a man named King David. And King David wrote this, and it's recorded in Psalms 19, talking about heaven, talking about creation talking about God himself. He says this in verse 1 and 2. He says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. 
The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. Have you ever had one of those moments when you look up to the stars and you may be in the middle of nowhere, where it's not being flooded by the lights of a local city, and you just see the brilliance of the amount of stars that exist in our sky? I can remember for the first time we had recently moved. I was about 17, 18 years old. We moved from rural Kentucky out to Colorado, and I had a quick trip out to the mountains in the middle of nowhere in the mountains in Colorado with some friends. We did a weekend camp trip, and I remember so far out from the city, and you added the layer of elevation to the mix. I remember standing out there in the middle of the night. I had never seen so many stars in my life, and it just almost took my breath away. This is what David's talking about. That when you just slow down for a moment from the busyness and the being drowned out from the world around us, even outside the lights, when you just look up into the sky, you see the brilliance of God all around us. See, the Christian faith is a belief that is, when it, in and of itself, is an evidentiary belief. It is a belief that is rooted in historical revelation of God. Furthermore, the witness of Scripture has the claims of truth which can either be validated or they can be invalidated. When these claims are validated, they provide reason for belief in other claims which are believed even if not capable of being proven through scientific means. So it's kind of in that it's safe for us to say the, the next thing we need to observe, so we start at the very beginning, but the second thing that we need to be willing to do is to dive into the design of it all. Study the design. I, wanted to, I, I came across, as I was kind of preparing for this conversation, a really, really fascinating, it's just a two-minute clip put on by the university at John Hopkins University. I want you to take a moment. I just want to watch this because this blows your mind of what they're understanding about our universe the world in which we live and we call home. Go ahead and play this. Growing up, I was very much inspired by astronomy pictures, galaxies, nebulae, etc. Now I think it's basically our time to create a new picture and share it with everyone out there. You can see images of individual galaxies made out of billions of stars and planets. And then this map representing galaxies just as little dots allows the viewer to basically understand different scales at the same time. So seeing the vastness of the universe, it's quite inspiring. I'm Will Smenard, I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins University, and we are here today to talk about the map of the universe. The map is only showing a thin slice, its thickness is about 10 degrees, but this map shows the actual position and real colors of about 200,000 galaxies in the universe. Every dot in the map is an entire galaxy observed by the Sloan Telescope. Sloan Digital Sky Survey Telescope has been uh, observing the sky night after night for now more than 20 years. It has collected data for millions of galaxies out there. Astrophysicists all around the world have been busy analyzing this data for many years, but nobody really took the time to create a map, gather all the data, and visualize it in a way that is scientifically accurate, but also accessible to people who are not scientists. So this is basically what we're doing. I started working with Dr. Menard about two, three years ago. Look at the environment. It's not hard to generate the map because you have all the data. 
What's really hard is to generate a good map. Yeah, we're doing currently. What is unique about this map is its size. You're working on basically the biggest scale that there is. To understand how these galaxies interact with each other and how they are distributed throughout the universe. In this map, we are at the very bottom. We are a tiny speck, just one pixel. And when I say we, this is our entire galaxy, the Milky Way. There's this structure that brings the whole universe together. I think everyone can get something out of this map and better understand our position in the entire universe. When I first saw that, probably a similar perspective that you have right now, like, oh my goodness. When we talk about the holiness of God, this gives us a little bit of a glimpse of how different, how set apart God really is, that he would create at this level of enormity. Did you catch that when he said, hey, we're here at the bottom, but I'm not talking about we, I'm talking about our galaxy? In just a short little glimpse of the world, 10% of what they're trying to track, 200,000 galaxies in that map. And then you begin to put it into perspective. This God that put all of this into motion by mere words, understand this, wants to have an intimate, personal relationship with you. Don't, don't miss that today. That in the midst of the enormity of the world that exists around us, no matter what may be drowning out the truth around us, you matter to God. You matter to him. He knows you. He knows your struggles. He knows you intimately. When you step back just for a moment, this helps us begin to understand a little bit, but let's, let's begin to narrow the focus a little bit. When you begin to understand the complexity of life alone, the design of the universe that they're mapping out before us and, the, and how large it actually is, a willingness to consider a creator who created and designed with an intentionality and purpose. There are about 150 different astronomical constants that are perfectly designed for life to exist. And these are the ones that we know of. And essentially, what they've proven is a billion things like this. That if the Earth was tilted its axis just a little bit more or a little bit less, we would all die. If the Earth spins just 10% faster than it currently spins, the entire world would flood, we all die. If the average distance from the Earth to the Sun, get this, is three-tenths of 1% closer at its closest point, we all die. That's why an agnostic physicist named Sir Roger Penrose says this. He calculated the likelihood of the universe having this precise of a design. And what he came to conclude, you ready for this? That the odds of this actually happening by accident would literally be 10 billion or so to the 123rd power. Now, some of you have, you go, I have no idea what that means mathematically, okay? What that means, 10 billion times one with 123 zeros behind it. 
basically that is an incalculable number. It's impossible to put it down in one single row. Here's what it means. Let's put it in terms that you and I can begin to understand. That means that the odds are that you are more lucky lucky to win the lottery 10,000 times in a row and get struck by lightning every time you cash that little ticket in than you are for this to actually happen. That, that just to give you a little bit of a perspective. And that's why, again, an agnostic, an atheist, I mean, late Christopher Hitchens called this the most compelling argument for the existence of a God. So we need to go back to the beginning. Look at how Scripture begins to capture it. But it's important for us to study the design. Because in the design, we see the handiwork of God. The third is, we can't walk through all of this and not consider the power of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. Why? Why why would we even engage the resurrection of Jesus in part of this conversation? Why is it worth considering? First, Christianity is the only religion with what we call falsifiable religion, meaning the entire system of belief holds holds Christianity together is based on this one truth, the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, he writes it this way. It's captured in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's going to come up here on the screen. He says, For I delivered to you as of the first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 others at, at one time, most of whom are all still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He then goes on to talk about if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, if these accounts didn't actually happen, this whole thing falls apart. That what I have been doing, what I've committed my life to, is foolishness. It all hinges on this reality. Did Jesus actually do what he said he came to do? Did he actually die for sins and did he rise from the dead? If he didn't resurrect from the dead, none of this matters. None of it matters. This is huge. If Jesus didn't come out of the tomb, this is, a, this is a huge joke. So making the connection between our faith and science, it, it should push us towards the cross. And specifically, we have to personally examine the resurrection of Jesus. There's a professor named Gary Habermas. He currently resides as a professor in residence at the University of Liberty in Virginia. He's made his entire life study and research focused on the historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. He writes that right off the first, right off the bat, he talks about, and now to help us, six minimal facts that we have to consider about the resurrection. So before you even dive deeply into the historical, looking at this, 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 he says there are six minimal facts about the resurrection. Now help us understand how he got here. Gary actually compared about 3,400 different resources. 
You've got Christian resources, you've got secular sources. Over 3,000 sources. And for one of the facts to even make the list, they had to be on 90% of all of the sources. Most of them were actually on 100% of them, or at least a very, very close to that number. So I'm going to walk you quickly through those six facts about the resurrection that you have to consider. The first is this. Jesus was a real person. He was real. He lived. He lived a life. It's documented in that he died by Roman crucifixion. Jesus is not a made-up person. Our entire calendar system is based on him. There is enormous evidence that he lived and he died by Roman crucifixion. That's number one. Number two, Jesus' followers experienced what they believed to be actual appearances of the resurrected Jesus. We see it recorded in the scriptures, what we just read in 1 Corinthians, but there are all kinds of other resources out there documenting the, the sightings of Jesus post-crucifixion. You have to consider the resources there. Number three, because of those experiences, these followers were willing to die for their faith in Jesus' resurrection. All but one of the original disciples, the group of 12 that were his closest followers, died for their faith. They gave their lives for this cause. I mentioned a few weeks ago the man named Thomas. He went from being enormous in doubt saying, I will not believe that Jesus is actually back until I can actually see him firsthand. I can put my fingers in the holes in his hands. I can touch him in the side where a spear went in. I won't believe it until I can actually touch him. Thomas was the one that, that went the furthest away from home base, went to India and gave his life, was killed for his faith in Jesus. You don't do that for a lie. You don't do that for a lie. Number four, the Christian church started right after Jesus was killed. Right where Jesus was killed in the city of Jerusalem. There had to be a meaning that, that drew them together. The Christian church, that's exactly where they started, and it began to spread from there. Number five, James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James in your New Testament. He was not a Christian until after he believed and saw Jesus resurrected. He grew up with Jesus in his house. He didn't believe it until Jesus' resurrection. James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the earliest church. James became that leader, and he writes with enormous focus and challenge because he lived it. He saw it. If you haven't read through the book of James, I would encourage you to do so. Number six. Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, he actually makes this transition from killing Christians to actually starting the churches because he had an experience with who he believed was Jesus in risen form. You've got to consider these. These are just six minimal facts about the resurrection that help bring all of this together. Here, here comes the biggest question. Why believe Christianity is true? Why do I believe Christianity is true? How do I hold this in balance? Understanding science, faith, so much so. Well, first of all, here's four reasons. Number one, because of the Bible. 
Because as I study the Bible, I don't see anything that is disproven the Bible and the truth of the Bible. Number two, science. I believe science backs up the existence of a God. That video that we watch is just one little understanding of how our world is created, that it's so vast, but it had a beginning. Number three, when I look at the resurrection, when a man predicts his own death and then actually gets up and walks out of the tomb, I think he's somebody that's worth following. I think he's worth following. And then the fourth is, I've experienced a life change in my life, and I've witnessed it in so many other people's lives. When you experience the truth of who Jesus is and his power in your life, it's hard to walk away from that. Christianity and science, they do not have to live as competitors. But if we're honest, there really are more complementary. So where do, we, where do we go from here in, in navigating these challenges, navigating these moments in our lives, in our faith? First thing is this. Keep studying the Word of God. Grow in your theology, your understanding of who God is, how He connects, how He operates in our world. Study His Word. Not just read it so you can check it off a list. Engage it. Try to understand it. Understand the context by which it was written. Understand what it means for me now in this moment. The truth that exists there. If you engage his word, it will transform your life. Study it. Grow in your theology. The second thing is this. You need to be knowledgeable scientifically. Read it through the grid of what God has revealed to us in scripture, but you need to know your science. My kids love me for saying that. And the last is this, church, practice humility when it comes to how we all put it together. Practice humility in the way that you engage doubters that you run into on a regular basis. These things don't have to live in opposition, which means we don't have to live in opposition with people that may look at us differently. Love people where they are. Walk with humility. Learn to love Jesus and allow him to give you the wisdom to guide you each and every day. Science, philosophy even for that matter, don't need to be things that create a, 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 that create a wall between us and God and allow us to go further in our relationship with him. So let's submit to him. Let's walk humbly with each other, I pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for the truth that we see in Scripture and who you are and what you continue to do. God, we ask that you continue to walk with us each and every moment. Help us to be humble. Help us to be wise. And that there be nothing that stands in the way of who you are and what you're doing in our lives, I pray. In your name. Amen.